Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salam. Ala Rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi. Uman wa ala. Alhamdulillah. It is uh, my honor and pleasure to be here with you all this evening, and we ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to place immense blessing uh, in this time that we spend together, and uh, these are that very great opportunities for us to reconnect to our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala, to be reminded of what is truly important about life when we come and spend a dedicated amount of time to that replenishing our spiritual states and that reminding ourselves of the whole purpose for which we've been created and picking up along the way practical pieces of advice as well as that very important that pieces of knowledge that help us that understand the world and view it as it should be viewed. And um, that this, what we're doing is a practical uh, example of implementing uh, the talk of what, the title that I've been given to speak about tonight, which is the idea of cultivating one's environment to develop the inner self. And um, that what we're doing is a prime example of doing just that. And that these interactions that take place when we come together are very important. And um, as Sheikh Abdul Hakim reminded us today in the khutbah, that the osmotic nature of the human being, the way that we benefit from and respond to that which is happening around us. And when you have a group of people come together for Allah Ta'ala's sake, is that the benefit is compounded and there's immense good that comes from it. And it is for this reason that there are so many aspects of our deen that are of a social nature, because is that it's in coming into contact with human beings that a lot of the meanings that lie dormant in the heart rise to the surface. Or if you will, they're stirred up in a way that you would have a bitter cup of tea and there would be uh, sugar in the bottom of it. That, that tea is not going to taste sweet until you stir it up. And once you stir it up, depending upon the amount of sugar, that it will taste sweet. Likewise, there are many things that lie dormant by way of potentiality in the hearts of the children of Adam that it's only with that spiritual struggle, it's only with that exerting oneself that these things ever truly become realized within one. And so that the Adamic potential is that amazing. Every single human being has within them that which is known as the Sidra Nafcha, the secret of the blowing of the Ruh. And thus, every single human being, man and woman alike, has the ability to ultimately come to know his or her Lord and to attain ma'rifah, which is the whole purpose for which we've been created. And that, in, as one of the great scholars of this science has said, that whoever knows Allah, that ultimately has everything. And if you don't know Allah, that you've lost everything. This is what this is ultimately all about. And it ties into what we'll be speaking about, this idea of cultivating. And I do like the choice of words for this topic. And that some of the very best metaphors of all are metaphors that relate to the earth and relate to what happens in the environment around us. And it is that if you look at these beautiful metaphors and you think, for instance, of the heart as that a type of farmland, if you think of the heart as the spiritual earth within the human being, 
and just as you have to that, that cultivate outwardly the soil in order for it to properly grow what it is that you intend to grow and you have to take into consideration all of the other considerations it relates to climate it relates to timing and so forth and so on likewise this is the state of our heart is that our heart has to be tilled and that there's different types of soil in the heart and that as the heart becomes harder it's like trying to plant in that a very rocky soil and as the heart becomes softer and that it's like trying to plant in very fertile soil and it's just that always interesting to think about the parallels between the over farming that is happening in our day and age and the depletion of the minerals that in the earth which if you don't put that seeds in good soil it is surely not going to produce good fruit it's not going to produce that a good crop and that soil itself this idea that people previously maybe had a general idea but now we know in much more detail the actual minerals that are in the soil and the lack thereof that when you over farm earth is that what ends up happening is that you have an outward product but it's bereft of not only taste but the nutrients that you need and this is the case with so many hearts as well in our time is that the hearts are there right? we all have a heart but the spiritual heart is that there's been a drought and what happens when people's hearts become hard is that that manifests on the limbs in a long list of ways and so it is ever so important that we that take care of the earth of our heart and that we constantly till it and that when seeds are planted is that if we've done our work in tilling the heart is that then they will be just the right amount both beneath the surface so that we can then follow up and that water them as time goes and in the context of this special month of Rajab about which we heard uh, in the blessed khutbah of Sheikh Abdul Hakim uh, that this really is the month of tilling the soil of the heart and this is one of the many meanings that we can take from the Prophet's du'a for this month is to prepare for the blessed month of Ramadan and there are weak narrations that, that point to this month as being the month of istighfar this is the month that we return to Allah and that we repent for our sins which is the greatest way that we can prepare for us, ourselves to receive the blessings of Ramadan so the whole idea here and this is why they say is that Rajab is the month where you start to plant the seed and Sha'ban is the month that you water those seeds that you already planted and Ramadan is the month of harvest in other words it's the Sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whatever you put into something you will get out of something and so the more that we start to rewire ourselves into that prepare for this blessed month of Ramadan is that from now the more that we will get out of it and which ties in definitely to what we're going to be speaking about so this idea of cultivating is very important and um, I want to approach this topic uh, in the following way and for those of you that, had, that we spent a significant amount of time together on um, the weekend classes at uh, the CMC might have heard some of this already uh, but, it, but it is an important distinction that we have to be very clear on and the world in which we live can really be seen in one of two ways the world can be seen as dunya or it could be seen as alam and that if you look at this word dunya that dana yadnu simultaneously means that which is close to you or to come close to but it also means that which is lower so this world simultaneously is what is closest to us from the attachment of the nafs to the realm of the material but it's also the lower world in the sense 
that the dunya is that pull towards desire. It is that pull towards material. It is that which will cloud the potential of the ruh, which again, that lies dormant within every single one of us. And one of the ways, a convenient way of looking at this, and this is not definitive, it's just a convenient way of looking at this, is that you imagine your heart in the middle. And you imagine the material realm on one side, and you imagine the spiritual world, the celestial realm on the other. And the heart is right in the middle. And it has a potential to incline towards both. And so on this side you have the ruh, and on this side you have the nafs. Let's call it spirit, and that for this sake, let's call it ego. And in the middle you have the heart. And so the heart is constantly fluctuating back and forth. And every human being has a pull towards their higher reality, which is their spirit. But it's whether or not they respond to that pull. It's whether or not that they put that energy in to cultivate their environment so that the self can develop that or not. But there's also a pull towards the world. And this is the essence of how Allah Ta'ala has tried that the children of Adam. Is that what are we going to do with this state? And the more that we let the tendencies of the nafs overtake the heart, is that the more turpidity there is in the heart. And the more distant that we become, if you will, from the ruh. And that the more that we respond to the call of the ruh, is that the more pure the heart becomes, and that the lighter the shackles of the nafs. This is the essence of the human experience. And so, that if you look at things as such, is that the dunya is that pull of the nafs towards the world. And if that's too vague for you to that fully conceive of, that it manifests in the individual that manifestations of the caprice, the individual manifestations of the desire. So the nafs is you, it's who you are, but the hawa, which again, it's that same word, the pull, hawa, Yes, it is wind, but it also, is to fall, it's that pull. Are those individual desires that arise in your heart? And this is why our scholars went into painstaking detail to classify the various shahawat. And they can list them for you. And it's ultimately rooted that in the Quran and the hadith of our Prophet And we have a long list of individual desires that appear within our own selves, that is the nafs. And then to the degree that we deal with those or don't deal with those, that they get the better of us, or that we make an intention behind everything that we do, will be to the degree is that we, that we allow ourselves to be pulled into the realm of the material. And so that the dunya has a negative connotation. And unfortunately, that our community tends to be a little bit immature, is that sometimes when you that speak negatively about the world, is that they will instantly say, that they will critique what it is that you are saying as if that you are that becoming fatalistic and that you are not being optimistic about life and not seeing life as a but we're not saying any of that as you will see we will balance everything that I'm saying with the positive view of the world but it is absolutely of the utmost importance that we understand evil for what evil is and we know what are the negative tendencies that are out there so that we can prevent ourselves from falling into that which will harm us. That has not Allah given us a natural faculty whereby which is that we want to bring about that benefit to ourselves and ward off harm. Is that we have fear and we have hope and that we have that within our own selves 
that we are, the natural proclivity is to ward off anything that's going to harm ourselves. And so that when you fear, fear is a natural emotion for you to protect yourself from what's going to harm you. And that just as when you have hope, this is a natural that emotion within the human so that you can do something that's going to bring about your own benefit. This is a part of who we are as human beings. So, is that if you look at it as such, is that we will find is that the, the dunya is that pull to the, that, this world. And um, it has a negative connotation. Whereas the alam is a very positive thing. And so the world is one world in which we live. But there are two, perspe two perspectives. Just as someone could see the world as that a sign of Allah, someone could see the world and it could be confirmed for them in their that misunderstanding of how to view that world, that it's just a sign of nothingness. And that's all there is is material. Two people can look at the same thing and perceive that the opposite in relation to that thing. And that this is why you have a mu'min and this is why you have a kafir. You have people who believe and you have people who disbelieve. This is a fundamental dichotomy that exists in the world that manifests as well in the next world. So if we look at this world as alam, that if you trace it back to its root, it relates to knowledge. And it relates to the world as a sign, as a signpost, as a landmark, as that something that indicates something that is beyond the material. There's meanings behind that everything in the world. And the world is, in this sense, if, if we use the word, word world to translate Adam, is something that we can learn to read. But you have to take time to do that. Just as outwardly, you don't just all of a sudden read. If you want to learn a language, is that you have to that learn the letters of that language. You have to learn how to pronounce it. You have to learn if it's a uh, language like Arabic, the, the, the different positions of the letters in the word and the different shapes of those letters and how to connect them and so forth and so on or whatever language that someone is learning, is that it takes time. You have to go little by little before you'll be able to read that language fluently or speak that language fluently. And so the same thing is with the world. We have to train ourselves to read the world. But when was the last time that we viewed that, the world as such, that it could be read? And secondly, when was the last time that someone actually taught us to read? And like anything else, like learning a language, if you just sit in one Arabic class and never follow up on learning the language, how are you going to learn Arabic or any other language? It's something that you have to put a lot of time into. To learn to read the world is not an overnight thing. But then, like anything else, is that if you put the time in to learn how to read the world, is that you get better and better and better at it. And this is why that some of the scholars of, that, 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 that have referred to there being three books. You have the Qur'an, which is the recited book that Allah Ta'ala has, has sent to us. And it is only through the Qur'an that we can make sense of anything else. This whole idea of that humankind, cosmos, and that God. It is the Qur'an that allows us to understand how all of this relates that one to another. How we understand humankind relates to the creation and how both humankind and creation relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Qur'an is that the manual for, that teaches us exactly how to connect those dots. But we also are taught through the Qur'an how to read the world. And then, that at a more esoteric level, there's also 
that a type of book that is read, and this is a more spiritual thing, and you have to put in spiritual struggle in order to be able to learn how to read in that particular sense, but it is another type of book, and it is a hidden book where that you're inspired with meanings that at the heart level. That do we not believe in angels and do we not believe that angels are the source of inspiration? Indeed they are. And by going through this process of learning how to read a language, learning how to understand meanings of a language and then read the book of creation, is that one will cultivate in themselves the ability ultimately to be able to read that in a very different way as well. And that this is a way that uh, you could call it what you wish, and that sometimes you could become so good at reading the creation, which includes people, is that people will think it's a type of inspiration when it's really not. There are certain types of knowledge that are out there, and this is that there's plenty, uh, there's, there's uh, that plentiful examples of this in the books of the scholars that, that indicate the various types of knowledge that are out there, and they're not necessarily based upon unveiling. Unveiling is something else entirely. But it's important that we speak about these things uh, because it is that a fundamental part of the human experience, or at least it's within the realm of possibility of the human experience, and that it's, if someone's not experiencing that themselves, by being around people that are, it's the next best thing for you to reach that higher degree of certainty where you're on the verge of experiencing yourself, but you're really not. And that that level of faith is a prerequisite for certain stations of the religion, which are the whole purpose of outward worship and interactions that you have with people. And then the character that follows as you remove the vices from your heart and adorn yourself with uh, virtues. And that when we talk about that these, what are known as the maqamat al-yaqeen, the stations of certainty, that requires a slightly different type of knowledge. Whereas the first half of a book like the Ihya al is ilm, amal, and then hal, that knowledge that is put into practice that bequeaths a state, that the second half of the Ihya really is the other way around. And an experiential type of knowledge that you have that allows you then to do things by way of amal that you couldn't do previously. And then as a result, that it leads to that at even higher state. And that the way that we fluctuate as human beings, as you get to the higher degrees of certainty, it enables you to do what other people can't do. And so not only is the heart an essential part of a discussion of practicality, it is the most important component of practicality. And lest we forget that we tend to relegate practicality entirely to the outward dimension, no. The practicality begins with the level of your heart. According to the level of your heart, you will act outwardly. And that the stronger your faith, the more that you have that realize virtue within yourself, like tawakkul, trust in Allah, and the more that you actually truly believe in the names of Allah, like Ar-Razaq, the provider, the giver of sustenance, and all of his other that names, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the more that you will experience that, that you, without relying upon the means, we will always be connected to the means. The means are there, the asbab. But the stronger the inner state of your heart becomes is that the how you could put it is, perhaps you could say, is that the, the more subtle the relationship with the mean, the, the, the more subtle relationship that we have then with the means. So the alam is in the sense of seeing the world as an ornament. It's the cosmos. 
If you wanted to use a different word and distinguish it from the world, if we're thinking the world, of the world as negative or lowly. The alam is the cosmos, it's an ornament. It's this, as the world insofar as it is a sign of a manifestation of what the names or attributes of Allah. And learning to read that and, the, and requires reflection. It requires that we spend the time reflecting deeply on something. And again, that this is one of the abandoned sunnahs of our Prophet How many words do we have? Beautiful words that indicate this concept of reflection, which you could translate differently in English. Words like tafakkur, words like tadabbur, words like i'tibar. All of them, if you would do a linguistic analysis of these words, is that you would, they would indicate what is actually happening in that process that is taking place. Like i'tibar, abara ya'buru is to cross over something. And so again, it's this idea of you're crossing over the superficial outward meaning to a lesson that you want to take from something that is happening. So you're not seeing the event as an event. That you learn if someone, that the sunnah of Allah is, if you do, if, to achieve something that you're willing to cut corners and to do someone in or to do something wrong, the same thing will be done to you. A short time will not pass except that will happen to you. So what you appear to have an opportunity and an advantage in doing something, but you realize the sunnah of Allah, if you would look around and see people that cut corners, it doesn't work because it comes back to haunt them. Whereas if you would have been patient, you would have seen that you would have been in a position that was not a compromised one later if you would have just done what was right. This is a sunnah of Allah. But this requires that we learn to read what is happening around us, of course, without passing judgment on a particular individual, but to learn for our own sake. And just as this word tadabbar also, you can't normally see to the back and to the rear, but this idea of tafa'ud is putting energy in, exerting ourselves to understand what you can normally not see. Even if you use the analogy of a mirror, a mirror you could see in front of you, but if you want to see behind you, you have to have another mirror and you have to position it in a certain way. And, or you have to put in energy to turn around. Here, that this word connotes this idea of putting in energy to, un to learn what it is that you normally that can't learn or don't have access to. And so it requires that we actually spend time doing this. And I was asked to even to give a little bit of practical advice in this session. And I, I, really, I really recommend that we take five minutes of, out of the day. If you can't do it daily, do it two times a week. If you can't do it two times a week, do it one time a week or at least once a month. Spend five or ten minutes and teach yourself to reflect on something. Now, for a very abbreviated list of objects of reflection, I would point you to, uh, it's one of the first chapters, it's chapter three or something like that in the Book of Assistance by Memon Haddad. He walks you through some of the objects of reflection. And it's extremely helpful. And the idea of reflection is that you fixate your thought on one particular thing for an extended period of time. And you don't let yourself that stray from thinking about, to, to, to thinking about anything else. And there are many fruits in doing that. That two of the greatest fruits is that your relation to, to that particular thing that you are reflecting upon will change after you spend the time to do it, one. And two, is that by stopping your thought to reflect for a particular moment on something, 
it will also produce something very beautiful in yourself. Either you'll be inspired with meaning, which relates to knowledge, or you will that be gifted that something of a state that relates to that particular thing. So if you're reflecting upon a tree, for example, that you would be surprised the meanings that you could think about in a tree. And the meanings then that you, that you reflect upon in that tree, that how they relate to so many other things in life. Trees are amazing. Trees are where the heavens and earth meet. Trees that there's a, a wisdom and that why our prophet that took the bay'ah next to a tree. Indeed, those who pledge allegiance to you are indeed only pledging allegiance to Allah. Trees are where the heavens and earth meet. And that our Prophet was a means for creation to connect to uh, that their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so there are so many meanings in trees. Your relationship with trees will totally change after that. Every time you see a tree, it won't be just that tree that has no leaves. Or you won't just like the cherry blossoms. That you will like all trees and you will perceive meanings in them and your relationship with them will change. And then, that on top of that, that if you persist in this, you'll be inspired to connect between the meanings that you understood about the tree and life. Because everything in the alam al-shahada, in the seen realm, points to some meaning that in the that inner realm, or the abode of the spirit. And so that learning those connections is of the utmost importance. And then when you reflect upon something like death, is that one, is that in that process, it will profoundly impact you, that in relation to that, what you're, is supposed to be the, the end result of reflection upon death, which is preparing. In other words, it will energize you, it will motivate you, there will be a state that comes to you as a result of that reflection. And that really this idea of cultivating one's environment, one of the key components of that is reflection. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, but this is as an important starting point. So you have the dunya and you have the alam. And that this world could be seen as dunya or it could be seen as alam. Now, the next way I want to move forward in this idea of cultivating one's environment is that oftentimes we are a part of a particular environment, even you have the environment which is the greater sense of the word, that everything that, that relates to us, our entire surroundings or the conditions around us, but then we have if you will, that specific environment which is what relates to us specifically. And sometimes we are forced to be in a certain environment, so there's an involuntary environment, and other times that we have the choice, and so that it's voluntary whether we can be in that particular environment or not. And the beautiful thing here is, is that our deen gives us everything that we need, whether we are in a voluntary environment or an involuntary environment. The harder one, though, is the involuntary environment. Because it's not, not necessarily that the involuntary environment is bad, but more problems tend to rise in the involuntary environment. Now, that could be a physical location that we're in that is toxic. Or that could be certain people that we're around 
that are toxic, that form a part of that environment, or that it could just be related, something broadly speaking, to a tendency that is not the healthiest of tendencies of something that we're exposed to. And here, that it's of the utmost importance is that we learn how to cultivate our environment to develop the inner self, especially in our involuntary environments. And we have to have the correct co conception of religion, of deen, is that we realize the true gauge of our religiosity is how we respond to our involuntary environments, which includes those people that are going to have to be a part of your life. Now, as a disclaimer, I am not saying by saying this because, like I said, this is like sharia and haqiqah, looking at the world as dunya and looking at the world as alam. They are both two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. So when you talk about even iman, islam, and ihsan, all of them are interrelated. So even when you speak about them individually, sometimes we do a disservice to people in them thinking that somehow that they exist separate from one another. No. Iman, of course, is the foundation. You, there is no Islam without Iman. Thinking about Islam here, not in terms of the religion, but specifically in terms of that practice. Most importantly, the five pillars of Islam as stated in the Hadith. But Iman is the source of everything. There is no Iman, uh, Islam or Ihsan without Iman. So it's the foundation of the other two. But also, Iman and Islam are the foundation of Ihsan. There is no Ihsan without Iman and Islam. You're not going to have just Iman and Ihsan and missing the component of, of Islam. But then, just as those two, i.e. Iman and Islam are the foundation of Ihsan, likewise, Ihsan represents the completion of both Iman and Islam. So you can't really be complete in your Iman without Ihsan. Nor can you have complete that Islam without Ihsan. In other words, they're all interrelated. They all go together. So this is the beautiful thing about our deen, is that every possible dichotomy that could be resolved, or if you will, that broken through, that can, you can do this with our deen, is that you can prevent yourself from that being dichotomized, is that you can learn to find that balance, which is ultimately what we're all seeking for, to simultaneously see the same thing from two perspectives. But that is not an easy thing to do. Because that the tendency is to be very one-sided. And so really what we are that striving for is balance. Is that we want to balance the outward and the inward. And what I've understood from our teachers is, is that generally speaking, is that the Ummah of our Prophet if they incline towards one way or the other, tend to that incline towards a preponderance of that exoterism, not esoterism. And there's a benefit and a protection in that. Because if the mistakes that someone is being made is, being, is of an outward nature, they're much easier to correct as opposed to being that of an inward nature. Those are harder to correct. And that the outward is that there's an objective nature to it, so it's much easier that to rectify. Anyhow, what we are striving for is balance. And in every moment is that we want to see that what is happening before us from being one of two perspectives. 
that what is happening outwardly and then how we should view that inwardly. So simultaneously we are viewing the world as Adam and dunya. That dunya insofar as that we want to protect ourselves from that pull so our hearts, don't, hearts do not become cloudy. Adam insofar as this is an opportunity for ascension. And the beauty is that every single moment of our lives is an opportunity for us that to draw near to Allah. Every single environment that we are in, voluntary or involuntary, is an opportunity for us to draw near to Allah. Even if you're in the worst possible environment, it could be one of the most beautiful things of all in reality. In reality. And I want to just quote a brief line of poetry that indicates this. And this is a poem of one of the scholars of Hadramaut Habi Abdullah bin Sayyid bin Tahir, where he said, Atak Rabi Jazil, Wakullu Fi'lik Jamil, Wafik Amalna Tawil, Fujud Ala Tami'in. He said, Is that your gifts, O Lord, that are many, and that your actions are all beautiful. Your actions are all beautiful. That and we have long hopes in you. So that bestow your generosity upon those who desire it. And the shahid here is, is that he says, All of your actions in creation are beautiful. Now, this is difficult, very, very difficult for us to really come to terms with that. How could a tribulation be beautiful? He's not talking about the outward dimension of that tribulation. He's not talking about the dimension of sharia in that tribulation. Whether we judge something to be right or wrong based upon the classification in the sacred law. He is talking about how that tribulation that is viewed and experienced. And so you could have one of the worst possible that scenarios, but because of how you view that and how you respond to that, it is utter, utter beauty for you. Now, the caveat here is no one is saying, I'm going to put myself into a state of hardship. And we talked, we've been talking about this in the class over the, over those classes over the weekend, is that you never subjugate yourself to abuse. This doesn't mean that you're like, oh, I'm going to see beauty in all manifestations and I'll let myself be physically or emotionally or some other type of abuse, let yourself be abused. That's not what we're saying here. No, is that there's a way that you carry yourself, that in general, and then there is a way that in a situation where you are being abused, that you get yourself out of it, right? What this is saying is, this is the dimension of how you have to view things when you've done everything that you need to do outwardly. So focusing on the inward does not mean that you neglect the outward, nor does that focusing on the outward mean that you neglect the inward. You do both simultaneously. And the reality is, is sometimes we fluctuate a little bit here and there on both sides of things. But this is where we have to learn how to read the signs. And one of the greatest signs that your istikhara has been accepted is not that you pick up the mushaf and see that the verse that the first verse that you read, is not that you're necessarily going to see a beautiful dream that at night. The vast majority of people's dreams, even when they appear to be good, are muddled that with their nafs. 
So dreams are hard to interpret when we're still trapped in the nafs al amara in the soul that, that incites to evil. Is that the greatest sign that your istikhara has been accepted is that there's divine facilitation for you in that particular thing. Is that there's divine facilitation for you in that particular thing. Now that's not something you could just say definitively, oh, there's divine facilitation here. You can't judge it in that particular way. You have to sit back and see how things unfold. So, by way of example, if there's a job that you are applying for, and all of a sudden things go sour, the interview does not go well, and so forth and so on, and you don't get that job after praying istikhara, is that part of learning to detach? Is that if we did indeed do our part by taking all of the means, thinking things through, doing the best of our ability, praying salat at istikhara, asking good people's advice for that particular thing, and then we, we look at the signs. If the door closes, it's a sign that Allah Ta'ala is closing the door because it's not good for you. Whereas if the door opens, it's a different story. The same thing goes when it comes to marriage. The same thing goes where many things that, that pertain to our lives. You have to, we have to learn to reach the, read the signs. Now, at first, like anything else, like that novice weightlifter who's extremely sore and doesn't really know what they're doing and doesn't have very good balance or any athlete of any sort that's learning a new sport or any craft for that matter, is that you're not really good at it at first. It takes time to master anything. They've said you have to spend about 10,000 hours to master anything, doing that particular thing, to truly master it. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do 10,000 istikharas to master it, but maybe that is what we have to aspire towards. The point being, the more time you spend doing it, the more ability you will have to be able to read those signs. And that you'll start to get to the point where things actually come clear to you fairly quickly by virtue of the effort that you've put in. So, is that it's ultimately about this balance. And that what happens is, is that when we have the ability, when we're in an involuntary environment, that both this idea of maximizing benefit and minimizing harm applies. So when you're in an involuntary environment, you, you have to minimize the harm in whatever way possible, and then attempt to maximize the benefit. And so one of the most common questions as a convert that I get from other converts is how to interact with their parents. Because it's difficult. All different types of things happen. Parents respond to conversion in very different ways. And one of the th common issues that people have are family parties, family gatherings, religious holidays, and that going to someone's home that everyone else is drinking, you're not, that they get a little bit out of control, what do you do? Questions of this nature, and there's many others. These are just a few. And again, is that this requires an understanding of religion, is that you can't that abandon your parents, of course. You must maintain the relationship with them. You must show them ihsan. But it doesn't mean, obviously, that you take part in everything that they take part in. You have to learn the potential to mitigate the potential harm of any relationship. And the same thing goes for that if someone's employed with a particular company, is that there's certain things that you have to do to maintain your job and to be with your fellow that, uh, that employees. But there's limits that we have to set. 
And this is where one of the most important traits of all, which is, again, this is an abandoned sunnah of our Prophet and something that is very rare in the modern world to find people that it's almost like a miracle-like trait. There's a book called The Miracle of Tact. And that this idea of mudara, learning how to deal with people tactfully, and where you could still preserve relationships, but you still, at the same time, mitigate some of the harms of those relationships. And this is a golden principle. It's a virtue that if we can learn it, is that, subhanAllah, is that you will have amazing interactions with people, and that your relationships will flourish, and is that you will potentially bring out the good in any particular situation. But then also maximizing benefit in an involuntary environment. And the way that we have to do this is as follows. We have an in-depth understanding of both the sacred law, but also how to view everything that is happening around us as being from Allah. And part of this requires is that we hammer into our soul the idea of submitting to the divine decree. And that although this is very unpopular to speak about this in the modern world, the entire deen of Islam is based on submission. Let it be said. And if people are unhappy with that in the modern world, so be it. Everything is based upon submission. At the level of creed, at the level of practice, and at the level of that excellence, morality, ethics, whatever it is that you want to call it. It's all based upon creed. Yes, the fact that we develop rational platforms to understand it. Yes, that we explain it in certain ways. That's all great and important and a part of that, the historical development of the sciences that relate to those three spheres. However, the source is one, ultimately, of, it all is rooted in submission. That we are in a state of submission to Allah and the Messenger of Allah and what He has brought, And so that is a prerequisite for us when we are in an involuntary environment that is a bit distasteful is that what that does is allow us to be able to see the other side of that same coin, to see how something actually could be very important, a part of our growth, even though that we might not see it as such. And we should always keep in mind in this process is that the spiritual path is not linear. It is not linear. The spiritual path is only linear where the veil to be removed and you see everything that Allah Ta'ala puts you through over time and to see it somehow that manifests before your eyes on the way of a graft, it would be seen as linear. But to, from our perspective, it's not linear. Things happen here, there, this, that, all these types of things happen to us and sometimes it's even difficult for us to make sense of it. But it is not a prerequisite for us to benefit from any particular thing that happens to us that we understand what is happening. It is not a prerequisite that we understand the wisdom of any particular decree of Allah that for us to be able to respond in a way that is pleasing to Him. Oftentimes we won't understand and probably it won't, we won't fully understand until the real of our life is prayed, played on Yom Qiyamah. And this, the beauty of that is, is that we're not in control. And the beauty of that also is, is that then we're just required to do what it is that we can do. And that feeling, if you're with me, that is the start of one of the most beautiful that stations of religion of all, which is Ubudiyah. Just being a servant before Allah. And recognize you do not know what is good for your own self. And whatever position Allah puts you in is what is best for you. Very easy to talk about. 
especially as we enjoy the comfort of this warm room and we've all eaten and all of these other things and we're not suffering in the moment while many people on the face of this earth are. But the same principle applies to anyone and everyone anywhere they might be and everywhere they might be. So is that in these involuntary environments that are a bit distasteful, we have to learn how to minimize the harm of those and if it's something where that the sacred law is telling us to get out of that, if possible, we get out of that if possible. But even if we can't get out of that, is that still these principles remain for us to be able to deal with it, even if it's extremely distasteful. The same principle. And that requires a higher degree of faith, though. But the amazing thing of human beings is that Allah Ta'ala has made them extremely resilient. Extremely resilient is that you could have a major injury, right? Someone could have received a major wound. They were stabbed or something like that. I had a friend that was, was stabbed one time and he was explaining to me that he didn't even realize until an hour later that he had been stabbed. Because in the moment he was trying to protect himself and that he didn't realize until that, uh, maybe it wasn't an hour, sometime after that, that he had been stabbed. And he was able, you can imagine a blade going into you, just how would you be able to deal with that amount of pain? But the resilience of the human being and how Allah has given us these natural mechanisms to cope with pain. But that also applies at the spiritual level. We have amazing resilience. And that the untapped reservoir of responding to very serious tribulations exists within every human being. But that's what we have to do now at this level if someone's not experiencing that to that work on ourselves so the hope would be when we're in that moment Allah Ta'ala will inspire us with that response which is to turn to Him Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala so that we can respond accordingly. So then we have also we have that voluntary environments and that this is where we these are places that we put ourselves in and this is of the utmost, utmost importance, is that we are putting ourselves in environments that are for our own growth. And the beautiful thing about this is that if you think of the desert, I've spent quite a few years in the desert, and the des deserts are very desolate, you can have an incredible oasis in the middle of a barren desert. You can have an oasis where it's the temperature drops 10 to 15 degrees and that there's just all different types of vegetation and different types of fruits and different things that are grown and everything around it is completely desolate. And you have this idea of microclimates. And so those means, if we apply those to deen, is that you could be in the midst of a very hostile macroclimate environment that is around you but based upon your decisions on how you cultivate your own environment in little things that you do, is that you could create an oasis in the middle of a hostile environment. And this is possible in relating to the craziness of the modern world in which we live. This is possible in uh, our own particular locale, in our environment that relates specifically to us that we go through, things that we do on a daily basis, the places that we go, the people that we're around. Is that how can we create that an environment that is that productive 
that at the same time allows for our growth. There are a number of things that we can do. And one of the main things that unlocks that is the power of intention. And again, we have secret treasures in our deen. But the amazing thing is, when you speak about these in a religious context, everyone's fine. If you quote a non-Muslim who speaks on the power of intention, all of a sudden, everyone's like, yes, we have the intention in Islam, right? We know we have intention. We don't need a non-Muslim to tell us the importance of an intention. Yes, we can benefit from their research, I'm not saying that. But like, we don't need a non-Muslim to tell us about the power of intention. There's multiple books, just look on Amazon for books about intention, that talk about the power of intention. We do not need that. We have the richest tradition of all about intention. And it's very real. Because one of the khawas, the special properties of the intention, is ta'thir, its influence. And one of the most greatest examples of that is the mother of Sayyidatina Maryam. Rabbi inni nadartu laka ma fi batni. That she made a vow to give that the child that was in her womb to Allah Jalla Jalala. And why did Allah teach us that story? Because of the relationship between intention and the effect that it has on reality. Intention is very real. And intention can unlock for us an ability to benefit from every voluntary environment. What is our intention when we go out in the morning? What do we do? What is our intention behind going to work? What is our intention behind interacting with so-and-so or doing such and such? The power of intention, and we don't have time to go into that detail, unlocks this ability for us to cultivate that, a, that beneficial environment around ourselves. And this is one aspect of it. And then that, in addition, is that the du'as of our Prophet said, in which there's virtually nothing you can do except that there's a du'a of our Prophet associated with it. These are things that we should have learned all as children and we continue to do. And sometimes people approach these du'as like, oh, that's something I want to teach a child in Sunday school. Yes, from the standpoint, there is a particular part of our life that we should have learned them, but you have to realize those du'as are there to unlock the ability for us, we're speaking in the context of environment, or you can speak of it in the context of sacred secular, to, for us to benefit from everything that it is that we do and to turn what would normally be from the realm of the secular into something that is sacred. There's virtually nothing that you can do except that there was a du'a of the Prophet associated with it. And it's a very real. When you leave your home and you say, Bismillah, amantu billah, wa tawakkaltu ala Allah, that's simple, but it makes all the difference. That test that you take or that job interview you have will be different if you have angels praying for you, which they are, is that you be guided and you be protected and you be suffice. This is real. We believe in this. And we should not overlook this. That bringing dhikr into our lives, when you say, Bismillah, that when you do that thing, it's not like something else. Our Prophet clearly told us that Kullu you study this in the very, very beginning of your studies. Every important affair that does not begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, it is severed from blessing. Just saying Bismillah in everything that we do. And that the tendency to compartmentalize religion in the modern world, again, is that we have to put that energy in to cultivate our environment to not let that happen. 
Everything is a part of your life. You do not have to pack your bags and move to a desert to become a religious person. All you have to do is change your intention, unless you're in something that's just manifestly unlawful. That's a different situation. But all you have to do is change your intention. And then that bring the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your life. And I'm just going to mention a couple practical things as well uh, and uh, open up the floor for questions. There was more that I wanted to cover, but we'll get through what we can. And so we have the idea of intention. We have the idea of bringing that the basic component of the remembrance of Allah Jalla Jalalu into our lives. And the other aspect of this is as well, two things. Being around good people and regularly seeking sacred knowledge. Being around good people is one of the most important things of all. Is that we have to strive to be around good people. And we should all take stock and think about the people that we're around and try to be around good people. The best people that are available locally, but I would add to as a part of our regular practice, there are a lot of very good people on the face of this earth still as well, especially righteous people. And that in addition to the vacations that we take, it's sometimes good as well to seek out righteous people and to get their prayers and to go visit them. And the experiences that we have with those people are the golden moments of life. They are the golden moments of life. And then that we regularly we bring knowledge into our lives. And with knowledge opens up the door for us ultimately to that see the world as we need to see it and then to do that in relation to how we see the world that what needs to be done. And the beauty here is, and I'll close on this point, is that it is not required that we all become the Shaykh of Islam. What is required is that we all learn regularly. And again, what we are seeking in everything that we do is tawfiq from Allah. And by doing something regular, in this case learning, is that it will open up the door for us to receive tawfiq from Allah. That He will give us what it is that we need to know to return to Him safely, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the whole purpose of learning ultimately, is that to return safely to Allah. And at very least is that we attain salvation, if not sanctification. Um, I think inshallah we'll stop there, it's about nine o'clock. If there's any questions uh, that relate to this, I think we can take a, a, a few questions. And um, inshallah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.